if you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Matthew 2. I'm actually connecting the Advent reading from a few minutes ago to uh, the second chapter that we're going to be in this morning. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12 this morning. And let me say this. We have made a, an approximately 52-week journey of small things. What does it look like to leverage the small things in our lives for the glory of Christ? We've gone through an entire year of this, which is extraordinary. And in the humblest sense of that, I hope you have enjoyed that. I hope you've been able to see that there truly are 12, only 12. I mean, we could probably stretch that into 24 or 36 or more. Uh, but there are 12 things that we as the church can be able to leverage uh, in our homes and our relationships and the like for uh, Christ our King. And I hope this entire year you've been able to enjoy that, but also worship uh, the King of all things in those small things. Um, so this is the final sermon uh, of the past 12 months. And we'll kick into a new sermon series starting next uh, Sunday, uh, dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be there for about two months uh, until February 23rd. So if you want to begin reading ahead, go right ahead. We're, we'll start in Matthew 5.1. But today, let's start in Matthew 2, verses 1-12. through 12. If you would, please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. Verse 1-12, to 12, may you hear the Word of Christ this morning. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw His star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that he was heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the wise men secretly and found out from them the exact time of the star and how it had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard... <coughs> Uh, the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On the coming, uh, uh, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned in their country by another route. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for what this day means. And really the next coming days, the next two to three days, what it means for the church. That we have gathered not just to celebrate that You have taken on flesh in the second person of the triune God, but You have taken on flesh to restore us back to You, the Father that you have been able to do something almost extra, extraordinary. 
And so, Father, we thank You for Your mercy and grace to be able to worship that You are indeed the Son, that You indeed are the King of all the universe. And so, Father, we give thanks for this day and the days ahead until we celebrate that Christmas morning that You are the greatest of gifts. And so, Father, we offer these things in the name of Your Son. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we didn't sing it this morning, uh, but it might has been a part of a church service at some point that you have attended. Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem. Remember that one? Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem. Let me just read you the first uh, verse of this hymn, and I'm not going to sing it. I'll leave that to Blake. Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem. Shining far through shadows dim, giving the life for those who long have gone on, guiding the wise men on their way unto the place where Jesus lay, O beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on. In 2015, Colin Nichol published what is now considered the most in-depth biblical and as well as uh, astronomical study of this star of Bethlehem. He investigates the biblical accounts that you find in the Gospels of the wise men who are traveling from the east, the likelihood of exactly where these wise men came from. He also looks at the Greek language that the original uh, manuscripts were written in, and even the dis uh, description the Gospel writers present of who uh, this child is to be born. They then he goes on to offer uh, in-depth understanding and a very comprehensive understanding of this astronomical picture of what this star of Bethlehem could possibly be. And here is his conclusion. The star of Bethlehem was a comet. It was a comet. He even calls it the Christ comet. Considering these Looking at all of these details, in great detail, he looks and he says this, It rises in the eastern sky, which is especially clear in the northern hemisphere, that it seemed to stand over the city of Bethlehem. You have that description in Matthew 2. Then it almost moves from a south-southeast to south-southwest pattern, which is the direction of Bethlehem from Jerusalem, the path that the wise men take from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it has this standing in Matthew 2.9 showing that it was almost coming down and dropping in altitude over Bethlehem. That it appeared approximately 12 lunar months before Herod's massacre of the infants that you have described in Matthew 2, that it is intrinsically bright, that only the magnitude of a comet might have, and it likely reappeared in September, October 6 B.C., considering that Herod dies around 4 B.C., and the most approximate date that we have of Jesus of Nazareth's birth. Nickel concludes that it is most plausibly a comet and not a star. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news that doesn't change what is going on in the biblical account of Matthew 2. 
It doesn't have the same ring to it now that we sing, oh, beautiful comet, not star of Bethlehem, does it? The melody is far better with a star. But if you have some free time the next couple of weeks, I would just go ahead. Uh, if you are having problems sleeping at night, you can pick up Mr. Nichols' uh, book, The Great Christ Comet. And maybe it'll lull you to sleep. But I considered it a pretty exhilarating read to see what he had, uh, was able to present. But the star itself seems to be one of the focuses that you have here in Matthew 2, verses 1-12. through 12. So let's see what Christ, what else Christ has for us this morning and a word for the church on this fourth Sunday of Advent. I'm going to look at a couple of characters this morning that we find in this passage and then uh, really come to an end of why this matters for us as the church. The first character that we're going to look at is Herod. If you look at verses 7 through 8, this is where we have this interaction of Herod with those who are around him. Let me read you what Matthew says. Then Herod called the wise men secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I might go and worship him. Notice that, the, that Herod, the tetrarch of this area, which would have been a governor-like position, he calls for the wise men secretly. Secretly. He tells the wise men to find this child that he, Matthew tells us, can go also and worship this newborn king. But I think we can hear the tone that Matthew uh, conveys, what he suggests, what this King Herod is actually after. If you read the larger context of Matthew 2, which we didn't, we stopped at verse 12, but if you keep going down into verse 13, it seems that Joseph... Um, is given this message to leave. Well, why? Verse 13 tells us that Herod is going to search for this Messiah, King Child, in order to what? Kill him. Herod, we could say, is in his day a modern day Pharaoh. Pharaoh, if I can take us back to the Exodus narrative, um, hundreds of years before this narrative in Matthew 2, Pharaoh is this Egyptian ruler over Israel. Israel is exiled into the place of Egypt, and Pharaoh is lord over them at this time. And what you find with Pharaoh, he's not only oppressing the people of God with hard labor, he's, we're reminded in the opening chapters of Exodus this, that he became so politically worried that the Israelite women were birthing so many Israelite children that he wants to put a stop to it. Well, how? He sends some Egyptian midwives so that as soon as the child is born, they're killed immediately. So we can see, I think, what Matthew is suggesting in drawing the connections between Pharaoh in Egypt and Herod here in this passage of Matthew 2. Pharaoh is this oppressive, this power-hungry murderer. Well, look and see. Here is Herod, who is oppressive and power-hungry as a murderer too. One scholar puts it this way, what Matthew tells us is political dynamite. Jesus, Matthew is saying, is the true king of the Jews. And old Herod 
is a false one. He's a usurper. He's an imposter. And as we shall see, this Herod died soon after Jesus' birth, but his sons, they continue to rule on. And Herod Antipas plays a significant role in the developing story of Jesus himself. You remember where he shows back up? He's the one that puts Jesus to death. So here you have Herod father who is trying to kill Jesus shortly after he's born. And then you have his son, Herod Antipas, who comes at the end of Jesus' life. And he is the actual one who is a co-conspirator in Jesus' death. So to run around and say that there is another king who is among us, you bet the house of Herod was extremely scared because they wanted to be the kings in the area. So that's Herod. So let's look at a couple more characters in this story. The wise men, the magi, your translations might say, the ones who are from the east. Well, this term, we might think of it as these three men who come from afar to give these gifts to this newborn king. Well, the term magi could be those who are engaged in sort of occult arts that cover a wide range of things, such as astronomy. It could cover those who are fortune tellers, some sort of like priestly divines, or even magicians of some sort. Yet based on the fact that they're paying close attention to the star in Bethlehem and the behavior of this star comet that has arisen and it is now moving down, we could say that these magi are first and foremost nothing more than astronomers and astrologers in their day. Their lives were dedicated to gleaning from the heavens insights about our everyday life. They paid attention to the heavens and saw how this affected the world in their day and time. In fact, this word magi, as I said, it could be magicians, astrologers, uh, ones who interpret dream, uh, uh, dreams at the time. But if Jesus is in some sense king of the Jews, that means that his ruling and his lordship isn't just for Israel. What Matthew seems to be suggesting in the opening chapter, the second chapter of the opening part of the Matthew, uh, Gospel of Matthew, is that here we have this, church. Here's the part that the Gentiles, the non Jews, the non Israelites are coming and they're drawn into the Jewish story about the Messiah, the King who is born. According to numerous prophets in the Old Testament, numerous passages in the Old Testament, what you find is that one of the expectations that once the king arrives onto the scene is that this story of salvation isn't just for the nation of Israel. It's for the entire world. If God was mighty to save Israel time and time again, if He was faithful to Israel time and time again, then one day, said the prophets, the non-Jews, the non-Israelites, that is the Gentile people, they too will taste of the redemption of Israel. And these prophets, like you find in Isaiah and Zechariah, they saw the inclusion of the rest of the world into the redemption that God is bringing about. That this David-like king would show up and establish God's justice. He would establish God's peace through His reign and His rule as the Son of God. And so here we have Matthew opening his gospel with the Gentiles, these 
men from the east who were coming in and searching and longing to meet and yes, even worship this newborn king, the king of Israel, but also the king of the world. Here we have a collision of stories. You have the story of Israel colliding with the story of these men from the east. The story of a great king colliding with the stories of the magi or the wise men. But I don't know if you've asked this question, but I've asked it for years. How did these magi, these wise men, even know that this star, this comet, was connected to the actual birth of this Messiah, this king who was to come? If you look at verse 2, they ask this question, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. How do they know this? You have pretty much three theories about where these east men come from. One, possibly from Persia. That's a likelihood. One, from Arabia. That's a possibility too. But the most possible explanation is that they are from none other than Babylon. How do we know this? Well, if you look back into the story of Israel... Israel was in exile in Babylon for approximately 70 years. A few hundred years before the birth of Christ. So you can imagine that as these people of Israel are interacting with these Babylonian people, they begin to share stories about their beginnings, who they are, and some of their hopes and dreams. And one of the hopes and dreams of the Israelite people is that the Messiah would come that there would be the son of David who would show up on the scene and he would restore Israel back to their God. And so Babylon is considered most likely the explanation of who or where these men from the east come from. That's the captivity that they once held alongside of the Babylonians. And so as they're sharing stories, there could have been one major story that keeps coming up again and again and again that the Babylonians would have heard. And it comes from the book of Numbers where it says this. Pay attention to this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not too near. Here it is. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, as in a ruling staff, will rise out of Israel. It's very likely that the Magi had heard these stories for centuries about this Messiah King who would be arising out of Bethlehem, out of the land of Judah, whose rule would be expansive and who would have had this star-like phenomenon that would have been associated with this King's arrival. And so when they see this star arising in the east, sorry, in the west, and as they're looking from the east, they would have noticed this and put the two together. This one who is to come and this arriving of this star to signal that he is being announced. And what's fascinating about this collision between the Magi and the Israel story, though, is that, they find that, that the Magi do this. They find that the king's birth is so compelling that they devote approximately 500 miles of travel, which would have taken them about 28 to 37 days to accomplish, in order to find the king 
in order to give him some small, seemingly insignificant gifts, which we'll get to here in a second. But they devote that amount of time to go and search out for this king and give him these gifts. But they long to meet him and do whatever it takes in order to greet him face to face. Church, when we recognize that Jesus is the king of all kings, princes, and presidents, when we see him as the Lord of all lords, when we declare him as the God above all other gods, we're actually confessing that our stories that our desires and our hopes and even our, our dreams are not grander than His. We see His story as grander than ours. And we, like the wise men, recognize that we are submitting ourselves to You. That we are bending our knees to You. That this story that I'm trying to live out is not as great as the story as You're telling. And we're wanting to be involved with the redemption that's being brought about through Yahweh, the God of Israel. Instead, what we are doing and we submit to this Messiah King, we're confessing that this story of hope, that this story of restoration of life, they're greater. They're far more worthy than ours. And like the Magi, we're submitting the entirety of our lives and the entirety of our living and the smallest of our gifts to this King. And we're saying, you alone are King and we have come to adore and we have come to worship you. So let's look at those three gifts that the wise men bring. Matthew records, on the coming to the house, the Magi show up and they see the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh. That's verse 11. And so what you have here is a mingling and entanglement of worship and gifts. The purpose of this long journey was to meet the newborn king. Who is this king who's been born? But on top of that, they won't they understand that there are only two responses upon meeting this king. One, worship, and the other one, a offering of gifts. The Magi don't simply bend their knees. They fall on their faces when they meet this king. This is noteworthy because the tendency in Jerusalem and in Jewish thinking, the only time that you lay your face to the ground is when you're worshiping God. And so here we have these three men from the east who recognize that this is a king, but this is more than just a king. They open up their treasures to this King Jesus and they present Him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One writer points out how the gifts that the Magi brought were the sort of things that people in the ancient world would think had been appropriate only to kings and to gods. To kings and to gods. In our case, this is the king who is God and the God who is king. Both together. But what is signified? Have you ever thought about that? Why gold? Why frankincense? Why myrrh? Why these three things that are brought? The most common interpretation that you see all across church history is this. That the gold related to Jesus as king. So gold and kingship were connected. Frankincense was, well, for 
Jesus as God. One of the common scents that were burnt in the temple was frankincense as it rose as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this is a rising of worship towards God above all. And myrrh would have been for Jesus as the one who is to die. Myrrh was used for a number of medicinal or medical purposes, but it was also used for those who had died. They would spread myrrh all over the dead body on the second or third day of the death of that person. As beautiful and probably as uh, astounding as this sounds, I'm not sure this explanation fits into what Matthew is actually bringing about, though, across the entirety of his gospel. Instead, it's likely that the Magi's worship and the gifts that they bring, they are the first fruits, the beginnings of the nations, the non-Jews, the non-Israelites, as they are pilgrimaging and coming before this king above all kings. This was significant in the first century world. It was definitely significant for the Jews. And what you have here is that the Jews were waiting for the king to show up to establish the just rule on earth. They were awaiting a king who would even the nations recognize that this was God's appointed and anointed king. For instance, Isaiah, who's writing hundreds of years before the time of Christ, says this, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense and proclaim the praise of God. That's Isaiah. Then you have another passage that comes from the Psalms. It says this, May the kings of Tarshish and the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Sabah bring gifts. May they fall down, as in worship, before him. All nations serve him. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. Why is that significant? Tarshish, Sheba, Sheba. These are other nations, not of Israel, who are coming to recognize that this indeed is God's appointed king. And they bring gold and they bring frankincense. I think the portrait that Matthew is painting here is this. The worship and the gift giving is the long and expected king who would establish God's joy, peace, and justice on earth. And it has come through a babe. And guess what? Matthew is saying the nations are showing up and recognizing by giving him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's like Matthew is trying to plead with Israel. Do you see that it's not just Israel showing up? It is other nations recognizing that the king has truly come. And now, Israel, will you join along the nations in recognizing that Jesus truly is the Son of David, the Messiah, the Emmanuel that has long been promised and awaited? So what does this mean for us as the church? Let me begin with an illustration. Have you ever gone to a lake or some sort of pond early in the morning or late in the evening and you notice those gentle wakes slowly hitting the side. Seen them? Or the Tennessee River. There's almost like 
uh, glass in the late afternoon, but you see the slow wakes hitting the side. Or maybe uh, you've sometimes smell, smelled the fragrance of someone who has passed by and then it hits you another couple seconds later. We call them traces of someone or something. We call them remnants of something that's passed before us and then we see the effect. Paul used a similar metaphor of the church in his, one of his letters to the Corinthians. He wrote this, For to God, we, the church, are the fragrance of Christ. Those who are being saved and those who are also perishing. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the God we worship every single Sunday morning, every Monday through Saturday, where our worship meets our work, where our worship meets our family life, where work meets our relationships, where our worship meets our neighborhoods, we worship this God who took on human flesh. He incarnated Himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He took on eyes. He took on ears, a mouth, hair, fingers and toes, all the parts and appendages of what it means to be a human being. He dwelled within a specific time and a very specific culture. He healed. He loved. He taught. He cared. He showed compassion. He listened. He even corrected. He hugged and He redeemed through a cross and He resurrected from a tomb three days later. And He did all of this and we could say so much more to begin this new work of restoring creation and humanity back to the Father and recreating it in the way that it was originally meant to be. We could say that after Christ's resurrection, there's a shift in what is going on in God's work. That you have the earth that is now echoing the Garden of Eden where sin has not yet come in, where death hasn't showed its evil head, or even where there's this now perfect communion with God that was untainted at one time. The enfleshment of God is a unique confession to the Christian faith. And at the same time, it's wildly odd, isn't it? God took on human flesh. We're, com we're confessing something profoundly mysterious and weird at the same time. It is still mysterious the more we continue to say it and we continue to live it out. One writer in the 20th century, you might know the name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, Christ took upon Himself the human form of ours. He became man even as we are men. In His humanity and in His lowliness we recognize our own form. He has become like a man so that men should be like Him. We now know that we have been taken up and born in a humanity of Jesus and therefore a new creation we now enjoy means that we too bear the sins and sorrows of others. The incarnate Lord makes His followers the brothers and sisters of all mankind. Yes, Christians, we confessed that the Incarnation is utterly unique and it's exclusive to a one-time event. It happened one time. It doesn't continue to happen again and again. It was a one-time event in which the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh 
and it's taken in the person of Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth, to redeem humanity and creation, and we cannot repeat that ever. But I think Bonhoeffer's point in what he just what it was just read a minute ago is this. God became man that we might be restored to God. And God became man that his church, us, might leave the trails, the scents, the wakes, the traces of this incarnation all around us. So church, let us not forget to fail to tell this extraordinary story of God's incarnation. Let's not forget that this star comet, it is for all people, not just Israel. It's not just for us. It is for all people, tribes, tongues, and nations to confess that King is God and this God is King. And let us, like these wise men, submit our gifts and leverage the small stuff in our own lives for His kingdom, and who after all, He was the one who first gifted us the small things in the first place so that we might be faithful and obedient to them. How can we leave traces of the incarnation of Christ all around us? This is the story we tell, not with just our lips, with our lives, not just with our behaviors, but all of our bodies of who has showed up on the scene and let us continue pointing to that star comet and remind people that all are invited to worship Him as the true King and the true God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. We thank You for being able to dive into the riches of Scripture this morning that we are longing to hear a word from You that comes only from the Scriptures. And that we are a people who are trying our best to figure out what it means to worship You as King. And so, Father, forgive us. We're sorry. Sorry when we fail. We're sorry when we miss the mark. We misunderstand. Or really, we prefer to live out our stories first instead of your story. And so may we continue to tell this story with all of our lives. Not just, I'm going to give you a portion of it, but all of it. Because that's what we find in the story of the Incarnation. You didn't just become some of us as a human being, but you came, became all of a human being in order to restore us back. Restore all of us back. Not just portions of us. Not just our hearts. Not just our heads. Not just our hands. But the entirety of who we are to be restored and redeemed back to You. And so Lord, continue to teach our hearts and our heads and our hands to long for Your Son. And so Lord, Lean into us as we lean into You this season. And may we long to see that babe who is wrapped up in cloth, the one who has taken on flesh, but also taken on the brokenness and sin of our lives. And we can praise Him as the King who is God and the God who is King. And so, Lord, we offer these things in His name this morning. Amen.